Good morning, everybody. Oh, that's so nice. Uh, as, as Bill alluded to, uh, Mark and his daughter are in Albania. Uh, Levi and Rachel are also in Albania. So you have me this morning. There we go. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Schoenfeld. I, uh, I'm representing this morning. I teach down the road over at Belmont uh, University. I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience. So I've spoken a couple times here so far, um, but I'm going to continue on with our series here in First Peter. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, we have a son uh, who is three and a half years old, and in his toddler years, he has learned what I would call an essential trait of being a human being. Uh, I'll give you an example. So let's say that he decides that he wants to play with his little construction trucks. There's big and little construction. We have baskets for everything, right? Uh, so he empties out the entire basket of little trucks, plays with the construction trucks, dumps them out, um, all that kind of stuff. Even a few minutes later, decides that he's done with the little trucks, and now he wants to play with his big construction trucks. And so he beelines straight for that basket, ready to dump that out as well. And my wife or I might say to him, hey, buddy, uh, why don't you clean up your little trucks first and then move on to the big trucks? Because, uh, you know, it's kind of messy. Uh, his response, no. <laughs> Buddy, like, there's trucks all over the place. The living room is a mess. No. So we ask the important question that he loves to ask, but we'll fire back at him. Why? Why won't you do it? Because I don't want to. There it is. Just this morning, we were getting ready to come here to church, and um, usually he likes to put on his socks at the bottom of the staircase, and he threw a fit when he was putting on his shoes because he realized that his socks were already on, and we almost didn't leave the house. <laughs> um, our son has mastered the art of not doing the things we want him to do if he doesn't want to do it. Just a short list of the things that our son has decided Relatively recently, he doesn't want to do, clean up his toys, put books away, sleep at bedtime, turn off the TV when breakfast is over, nap, say thank you, ever, <laughs> have anyone but me unbuckle his car seat when we arrive in the parking lot, take a bath, once he's in the bath, leave the bath, <laughs> eat vegetables, eat fruit, eat protein, <laughs> eat anything that we call as a meal, like lunch or dinner, uh, that's not a snack, and now physically join us at the table when we're eating meals, just to name a few. And although my son is being a stereotypical toddler, I would argue that we as adults are not too much different. Uh, in our lives, we are also forced to do things we don't want to do. And if we have any liberty in that matter, we find ourselves doing and saying the same thing. No just with a little bit better social manner sometimes than our son has for us. Uh, the ultimate desire of the human flesh is to be selfish, to just want what we want and not to have to worry about what other people want us to do. And our text today is going to remind us about how God calls us to do the exact thing that we don't want to do, let go of ourselves and submit and we're not even talking about submitting to God necessarily or submitting to ones that we love today, but our passage talks about submitting to those that have power over us, the proverbial parents for our toddler place in our culture and society. 
So if we're ready, uh, let's read the word for this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, we'll be in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 25. This, the uh, verses will also be up behind me. Um, and if you're able, please stand for the word this morning. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Oh, you can sit down. I haven't mastered those commands yet. Uh, before we begin our passage today, 13 through 24, I want to bring us back to a verse um, just beforehand, verse 12, which Levi spoke about last week. <clears throat> verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, so just some reminders from weeks past where uh, Mark and Levi have spoken to us. Uh, Peter is writing this letter to Gentile Christians, non-Jews, who have come to the faith. These relatively new believers are living among their Gentile peers in a culture that is also very much non-Christian. Mark said three weeks ago when talking about chapter 1 that Israel's original job as a nation was to represent the loving and faithful true God of the world so that other nations might see them and say, hey, can we also worship that God? Levi spoke last week on this first part of chapter 2 and affirmed that this calling to represent God to others applies not just to the Jews, but to the Gentile Christians as well, um, and by proxy, us. Although your Bible likely has a new section starting in verse 13 with a bolded heading, mine says, subject to authority, uh, these are modern add-ons. It's important to note that the original letter would have flowed together, and everything we're talking about today directly uh, flows from the command in verse 12, to keep our conduct honorable so that when others see us, they might know God and come to worship Him as well. So we're going to talk about situations where a Christian might find themselves interacting with people who have power over them and are also non-believers. 
How is a Christian to navigate these potentially dangerous waters? Peter's answer is going to be verse 12, just in specifics as we go. You first honor them, and in doing so, show them who God is. And I want to periodically remind us of this and ask us to kind of ask ourselves a sort of self-assessment question throughout today. Am I being honoring of other people? And when they witness me and my words and my actions, do they see the God that I worship? Our primary verses today are going to be about honoring the government, so timely, and honoring a master as a servant. Um, But as we talk about context, what I hope we'll come to see is that what this means for us is that we witness Christ in our day-to-day lives, both within our nation and culture, uh, but also at our work. So let's kick off again in verse 13 uh, for the first part of this section um, in our nation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, Before we translate this for us, we should take in the social positions that these Gentile Christians would have had that Peter is writing to. Uh, First and foremost, they live in the Roman Empire. That is their primary nation state. As such, they are called to worship the emperor and follow the pagan religion of the Roman Empire. So a little bit of a between a rock and a hard place, right? Although Christians would later in history be brutally persecuted under Nero for not doing this, for not worshiping the emperor, Scholars think that the timing of this letter is not quite that point in history. Um, And so although they're not being brutally persecuted, these Christians definitely would live in towns um, among mostly pagans, and those local Gentiles were definitely concerned about this new Christian sect, and most assuredly would try to give Christians a bad name as troublemakers so that Rome would come in from the top down and punish them or do away with them. So these commands to honor the government and to do good are in some ways a how-to guide on how to avoid danger living in a mostly Gentile world. But it's also more than that. Um, One of the commentaries that that Mark had sent me was from Karen Job, and I have a very long quote from her, so I apologize ahead of time, but in her commentary of 1 Peter, I think it sums it up really nicely. Uh, She puts it this way, Peter instructs his Christian readers that they are to live appropriately within pagan society, as those who are in many respects but visitors. The visitor mindset is intended to motivate them to maintain a way of living that would be recognized as good by their Gentile neighbors, who speak against this foreign sect of Christians as evildoers. According to Peter, the visitor's goal should be to live in such a way as to quiet the negative stereotypes associated with this foreign Christian religion. This is to be accomplished by being people who do not indulge in self-destructive behavior and whose lifestyles can be recognized as good even by their pagan neighbors. In this form of lifestyle evangelism, Peter expects that instead of speaking evil against Christians, these Gentiles will be among those who ultimately glorify God. So Israel's primary charge to be a witness was also theirs. I think verse 15 is key here. Um, Peter says that by doing good, it puts to silence the ignorance of fools. 
Uh, the implication is that your goodness should be countercultural. It should stand out. It should be noticed by others. <clears throat> the word for doing good in this verse is the same Greek verb, agatha poieo. I just like to do that. It's fun. Put on my Levi hat for a second. Right? Uh, this same Greek word is what Jesus uses um, in Luke 6.35 by saying, love your enemies and do good, and agatha poieo. To obey this command, uh, it is not possible to love our enemies in our hearts as we pray for them silently in our own rooms. But we love those against us with words and public actions so that others may see. And our actions would be some from such a pure heart that they stand up against whatever accusations come our way. As Mark described two weeks ago and Levi uh, mentioned as well, uh, there are a few animals that can represent uh, our Christian responses to culture. Uh, one, the chameleon tries to adapt and blend in. Uh, the second one, the turtle, will seek to hide and retreat away from culture. Uh, and the implication was that as Christians, we're not called to be reeds blown by the winds of culture, whichever way they may move. And we are not to retreat from society and segregate ourselves in our own self-righteousness. But we do good. We proclaim God's goodness through our own public behaviors. Not to bring ourselves goodness and glory, uh, but to bring glory to God who calls us towards it. The problem, though, is... Uh, I think just being a part of our culture today, we realize that Christians do stand out all over the place, um, often for reasons that are not good, though. The following verses, 16 and 17, I think realize this as well. Verse 16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Live as people who are free. The readers of this letter were not free under Roman rule. For us, uh, we live in a, in a free country, but the freedom that Peter speaks of does not come from our political situation. Peter speaks of a higher freedom, a spiritual freedom from sin and death, what Jesus died on the cross to defeat. And so the emphasis here is we cannot use our spiritual freedom to do whatever we want, because if we were to act in all the selfish, toddlery ways that we really want to do, not only does it bring up personal sin problems that we have to deal with, but in the process, we give God a bad name. And so I would argue, not to counteract Mark, but there may be a third animal that we could also call ourselves that's problematic. Um, I would say that we can also become the skunk who just stinks up the place. Uh, I'll repeat again one quote from that uh, commentary I read earlier. Uh, to quiet the negative stereotype of Christianity, this is to be accomplished by being people who do not indulge in self-destructive behavior and whose lifestyles can be recognized as good, even by their pagan neighbors. It may be an entirely defensive uh, or an entirely acceptable response of defense of the skunk to spray those that come for them either because they're predators or something else nefarious. But at the same time, skunks develop a reputation. They're not exactly people you want to hang around in day-to-day -day life. We hear and we may even experience the negative stereotypes of Christians in our culture. Um, 
We at least see it all over the place, and Mark has referenced it in our place in, in our kind of progressive culture today. However, to deal with these stereotypes, we will also see how many Christians in public respond with hate, self-righteousness, and tone-deaf language. We see it in message boards and comments on social media posts um, and headlines and just in daily public discourse. And when the people who use Christ as a shield or a weapon of antagonism or hate, when they're the most vocal and loudest voices for the rest of culture to hear and see, it comes to dominate what this, we might say, an ignorant view of Christianity is, even when we know it's not what represents us or represents God that we worship. And just like this passage, where do we see this in today, probably most often than not, is within government and when politics are brought up. The government that rules over us is quite different than the government that ruled in Rome, but we still live in a culture where Peter's term, the ignorant fools, here I'll define as just people who don't know the true Jesus and the true Christianity, um, and instead paint us as backwards and oppressive, stupid and awful people. These ignorant fools may laugh at us, they point the finger at us, they yell at us, and ultimately will likely never come to know Christ himself if all we do is do the same things back at them. Verse 17 closes this section, telling us to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The implication is that the middle two, love the brotherhood and fear God, are the easy ones. There are in our building, right? Easy. Uh, but those ones on, on, the, <clears throat> on the sides, honor everyone, you mean that includes my enemies and those that antagonize and come against me? And you mean we have to honor the emperor for us, our political leaders? It's funny, you know, like this verse was still in the Bible when Trump was president, and it still exists now when Biden is president. It's funny how the Bible outlives our own short-term uh, political years. I don't think it matters what party you align yourself with. And, and honestly, you know, the news on Friday um, with the decision, it could have angered you, you could have felt like an attack, or it could have felt like a victory that was long coming. I don't know what your personal response was towards it, but these verses don't necessarily speak to uh, what the government should do. These verses speak much more to what we should do in response. No matter what party we align ourselves with, um, each party is guilty of targeting the other side, oftentimes with ignorance and prejudice and sometimes malice. And I could give examples, but I don't think we need to. We just saw it all weekend long. I trust that the Spirit will speak to your heart about what we witness in our polarized nation. Are there times when our government will do things that we believe are antithetical to the loving and faithful God that we worship and how he commands us to act in Scripture? Yes. But again, the manner in which we act will oftentimes define us to the culture that we live in. Are we honorable or do we just fan the flames? One of the coolest things that I, I've heard about with the early Christian church's reputation was that uh, their response to cultural and kind of social atrocities with love and grace. One example that I really don't have time to spend at length, but you can Google and kind of research on your own, is this practice that was known as exposure of leaving unwanted infants outside to get rid of them when they <clears throat> were not wanted. 
This was a socially acceptable and regularly practiced um, atrocity in Roman time. And was the Christian churches, was, were they known for inciting a rebellion to yell and scream and fight back against this injustice, against the government and culture? No, what you hear is that the Christian church became known and started to grow exponentially because they became known for finding those that were unwanted, for adopting them as their own, and for sacrificing their own livelihoods in order to raise them. And so at the end of the day, I think we have to ask ourselves the question I want to come back to. In this arena, in our political environment, in our nation, surrounded by all types of people with all types of beliefs and attitudes and actions, we ask ourselves, when others see and hear me and how I act online and how I talk about others and how I treat others, particularly in how I uh, deal with those that I disagree with or have issues with, would other people say to themselves, hey, what God do they worship? Can I worship him too? Within our nation, am I being honoring of others? When they witness me, do they see God? That was fun, right? You ready to get even more fun? You remember those verses about slaves? Yeah, we're going there. Cool, right? Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you being in Albania. Uh, So the second place we want to talk about, uh, maybe surprisingly, is going to be at our jobs at work. Um, Let's pick this back up in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, this got more fun. Uh, So where do I begin? Um, We don't have time to talk and unpack a lot of this. Um, I'm already going to be stretching the bounds of time as it is. But if the Gentile Christian position and culture largely was on the lower end of Roman society, Peter now is moving into an individual household. Um, This theme is going to continue in uh, chapter 3 with husbands and wives, but I don't have to talk about that one. Uh, within the household, servants would be the most vulnerable members of the household, and Peter uses them as a proxy for all Gentile believers who follow Christ. If servants are to submit to their household masters that rule over their work and livelihood, uh, we are too. But before we try to translate this passage uh, to us, uh, I think it's important to first acknowledge the, the somewhat ugly elephant in the room. Uh, being a servant in the first century isn't the same thing as being a slave during the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery. That's part of our history as a nation. Uh, That's where our mind will automatically go. And I don't have time to do kind of a a compare and contrast. I encourage you to look into uh, how servanthood worked somewhat differently back then. We just don't have time for that now. Um, And although it's not the same thing as slavery in the 17 and 1800s, one of the saddest realities was that uh, slave masters at the time who owned slaves in the American South would use verses like these to keep their own slaves in submission while committing atrocities against them. Uh, That was really bad Bible reading and uh, pretty unforgivable. But this text does not outright vilify slavery that we might hope it does, At the same time, God is not silent largely about injustice and slavery, just not in this passage today. Uh, And there's a lot of commentary, again, about how Peter in these few verses, although it doesn't necessarily seem it on the surface, is actually elevating the positions of servants in the household. 
But again, I, I don't really have time to unpack that. I'd rather help us translate it to our situations. So for the sake of being able to do so, I want to talk about just some basics of being a servant. Servants were not a small part of society, but it was a dominant and pervasive part of society. Uh, Theologian N.T. Wright talks about how one easy way to think about this is that every single thing that we use electricity to accomplish today, slaves were used to do those things back then. So everything. It would be likely that a majority of Peter's readers might find themselves in this position of a servant to a master. There was an expectation in the culture that a servant would worship the master's gods to assure some type of stability. And so if I'm a Christian servant, this all means a few potentially dangerous things. I'm already the lowest member of society with little rights, and now I'm supposed to follow my master's pagan religion. This is dangerous territory to walk, so what do I do? In this context, verse 18 can sort of help. Peter says, be subject to your masters, no matter who they are. This could be important to not make a dangerous situation for yourself. But then these verses start to get weird. What if you receive injustice? Verses 19 and 20 basically say, awesome, it is gracious to suffer unjustly as long as you stay good. What? Uh, To address these points, uh, I want to take a turn to help us translate these verses of servants and masters to us uh, who are not servants and who certainly have no uh, masters in the same way. Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler at the Village Church in Dallas just happened to do a First Peter series earlier in the spring, and uh, he's my Wednesday morning run listen, so I took a little bit of inspiration from uh, what he talked about with this passage. I want to lean on uh, an idea he said. One of the big issues when we read the Bible is that we transport our 21st century worldview uh, to ancient scripture, and sometimes that can work, but most times it doesn't, and it just falls apart. So we live in a capitalistic society, and most of us would probably fall in this range of middle-class people. Uh, And simply put, these were relatively recent inventions of culture. In the first century, you could have been rich because you owned a lot of properties. You may have had your own business in the sense of being a maker or a craftsman, but otherwise you were likely going to be a servant to someone from that rich category. And so we have to ask ourselves today, am I my own self-made boss? Am I completely autonomous? Or do I work for a company or a service where I'm under the authority of one boss, multiple bosses, or some nebulous corporate conglomerate that I don't understand? I'd say that most of us fall under this banner. We are freer than servants were in the sense that we are not under the complete autonomy But we're not fully free because we have to work for someone for our livelihoods. So perhaps the best translation for first century servants with masters to our 21st century ears um, is employees with bosses and corporations. And to not leave out our college students either here or watching online, whenever I talk about being an employee at a job, you can substitute your place as a college student under professors. (laughs) and deans, and university presidents, and provosts. So we use that lens and bring it back to our passage today. If you find yourself as an employee, the advice to servants may be the advice to you at your place of work. And yes, you can change your job unlike a servant. 
Definitely leave if the employment uh, you are under brings you harm or causes you to do things that are against what God commands you to do. But I'd say that as long as you are still within your specific job at the moment, under the authority of someone or something, I think that these verses apply to us in the day-to-day. So what is the command for us? Verse 18, submit and show respect to your boss, no matter how good or terrible you perceive them to be. Verse 19 says it is gracious to suffer there. And verse 20 reminds us that it is pointless to suffer for your own sinful actions because we do plenty of dumb things at work. It is gracious when we suffer for staying good throughout. And the same Greek word here, agatha poieo, for doing good. It is gracious when you are noticed for the good that you do despite having hardship at your job. And if you're stuck on the word gracious, I was for a while as well. We have to ask ourselves, like, what does grace mean again? We usually say grace is like a gift, this wonderful thing that we don't deserve. And in what world would we ever describe suffering at work as a wonderful gift? Usually we would say it as, I can't believe I received this punishment. How can our suffering possibly be gracious? Uh, Two reasons I want to introduce. First, our suffering is good for us. Again, from Matt Chandler, a quote I really like from him regarding this um, in reference to this passage is, all suffering exposes idols we didn't know were there. I'll say that one more time. All suffering exposes idols we didn't know were there. Being mindful of God, suffering will teach us about idols that we've come to build up and worship instead of God himself. I could make up examples, again, that apply to you, but I think the Spirit can do that for you. Uh, Instead, I'll just share uh, one example that works for me. So again, I I teach at Belmont down the road, and like any job, it can get to me sometimes. Uh, And the times where it gets to me, I have to ask myself, why do I feel like I'm suffering in a really good job that I would consider a dream one? Uh, One possible idol that I have not possible, one idol (laughs) that I have is that of people-pleasing. Mark has talked about this many times before from here. Uh, The approval of students that I teach is an idol for me. And so if I have a bad course evaluation um, or I hear uh, comments said about me uh, from other students or to other faculty, or maybe I have just a a weird or negative class interaction, or I just feel like I, I did a bad job that day. I have the tendency to focus on the negative things that happen and ignore the positive things that I experience at my work. And this suffering is is mostly because that I've built up this idol of people-pleasing, and it matters more to me what my students think about me uh, than what I'm doing for my Lord and Savior. And not purposefully, I don't mean to build up my students as an idol, but it's my sin nature. And because of that, I gravitate towards that. And I know this because when this cushy idol that I've built up is threatened, when somebody "Ah," doesn't like my class, I feel threatened, I feel this pull, and I realize that I care far too much about what others think of my performance. There are other idols, plenty at work, that I've thought about that creep up at different times. Uh, But again, I, I hope that the Spirit can help you think about your own jobs and what it looks like for you. And the thing is, like, I have a great job. I don't come close to experiencing persecution or the suffering that servants would at the hands of masters, especially unjust ones. 
But the key is, is that when I experience things at work, whatever uh, they may be, however benign they might be, I have a specific response. I complain, I get annoyed, I get mad, I get sullen. I will often suffer just for the sake of suffering, and publicly I can appear very unchristly. I don't know what you experience at work, the things that you have to deal with. But regardless of what happens to you at work, I think Peter's verses says that it is gracious when our response is to be mindful of God and continue to do good. It is gracious because when we're mindful of God, we recognize these idols that we've built up. And if we're trying to do good through that, we learn to worship our jobs and our ambitions less, and we learn to worship Jesus more. So the first reason for suffering is that it's gracious, um, is that it's good for us. The second reason in our suffering, uh, sorry, the second reason why uh, suffering is gracious is that it's also good for God's kingdom. Coming back to this question, I keep coming back to, what do other people see in you at work when you experience any type of hardship or suffering, either just or unjust? Are you the first person to gripe and complain and fight and rebel and badmouth other people? As uh, chapter 2, the very beginning of it in verse 1 says, Are you someone of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, which seems to define the corporate ladder that I think we live among? Or do you respond with honor and respect and grace? You may want to ask yourself, when others see me and hear me and how I act at work, or at school, and how I talk with others, and how I treat others, particularly in how I respond when things go south, would other people ask themselves, hey, what God do they worship? Can I worship Him too? At our jobs, am I being honoring of others? When they witness me, do they see God too? These are the two very broad areas that Peter talks about to these Christians, and I hope to us as well. Basically, submit to the authorities in your life because it's good for you. I feel like a parent just now. It's good for you. Do it. And good for God's kingdom, more importantly. I don't know if you feel persecuted at work or in our culture um, because of your beliefs in Christ. I don't know if you suffer before those beliefs. But if you do, the verses are a call to say that there is a grace to your witness of persecution you are like Christ himself. To see how we're reminded in these closing verses of what Jesus experienced. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because Jesus suffered as he was arrested, tried, beaten, abused, and hanged on a cross, he both serves as an example for you to follow, and he is also glorified when you as a Christian also suffer and respond in the same way. 
Verses 22 and 23 essentially say that Christ was blameless, yet he suffered anyway. And in his suffering, he did not repay it with harshness, but with gentleness. I like the word gentleness. Gentleness does not mean weakness. It does not mean inability. But gentleness is about having power and not using it. Jesus shows this in so many ways. Putting the ear back on the soldier that Peter cut off. Remaining silent as he is lied about and tried in the temple and courts of his hearing. Allowing himself to be put onto a cross and die as the son of God. Even redeeming Peter's betrayal with breakfast shows gentleness. The list goes on and on. And over and over again, I think Jesus displayed radical gentleness when he had the power to do whatever selfish actions we probably would have done instead. But you don't think the guard that got his ear back thought about that like later that night? (laughs) Or that Pilate wasn't still nagged by how weird that trial was? We know that the centurion at the cross himself testifies in Matthew that truly he was the son of God. And this letter is evidence that Peter's life was forever changed by Jesus' gentleness towards him. The thing is that like, we have power even when we don't feel like we do. You may not be a boss or a politician. You may not wield power and authority in those specific ways. But no matter what your status is at school, at work, or in culture, you can still speak and act in ways of aggression, deceit, self-righteousness, and selfishness. This is how our culture operates. We live in this individualist nation, and the corporate and the social ladders that we live among are dominated by empowerment, no matter the cost often. But I think Peter says that when you choose to be gentle instead, people will notice. And if people ask you, hey, I don't understand, like, why'd you take that? Or why'd you do that? Or why didn't you do this? And your response to something along the lines is, oh, well, you know, I follow Jesus. Hey, let me tell you about what he did on the cross. <laughs> my favorite book of the Bible is Daniel. Uh, and my favorite story of that book is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you likely know it, but I think it is the perfect practical example of what this looks like um, in a low place of society. In short, these three guys are the servants of a Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And they choose to follow God instead of worshiping a giant idol or chocolate bunny, if, you know, for my, you know, you get it if you get it, right? Um, Sorry. (laughs) So the king decides to throw them in a fiery furnace to punish and kill them. They didn't fight back. They didn't yell and scream at King Nebuchadnezzar. They did not organize a rebellion. They did not lie and cheat and deceive their way out of trouble. They did not throw their co-workers under the bus to save themselves. They did not do any of the things that our selfish nature would like us to do in those situations. But before being thrown into the furnace, they say my favorite verses in all of Scripture that I'm happy to share. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar tells them point blank, hey, you either worship this idol I created or I throw you in the furnace and you die. And their response in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. 18, but if not, Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Man. 
If that doesn't say everything that I've been trying to say, but in like 40 less minutes, so I apologize. To be able to say that God will rescue me, and he has the power to do so, but even if he chooses not to, and I remain in this suffered state, I still choose good. Um, As I invite the band to come back up here, you probably know the end of the story. They get thrown in the furnace. They're completely unburned. Perhaps Jesus walks around as a fourth member of their group. And they're brought back out. And to me, the coolest part of this story is not what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 28 and 29, it states, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in his way. All right, Neb went a little overkill, that's okay. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, man, to act in a way so pure, so honoring, and so respectful to God first, but everyone next, that even a wicked king would praise God's name in the aftermath. Ain't that the goal? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for the reminder that it is not about us, but it is about you. And God, I pray that we would be encouraged and we would be inspired to find places to do good, to be gentle, uh, to submit out of honor and respect so that more and more would come to your name. We love you and we praise you. Um, We pray for your name to be glorified 